from the folks at Not Safe for Mom Group. This is the Not Safe for Mom Group podcast, where we bring you real moms telling you real stories about their lives. The stories that usually take a few glasses of wine or a whole lot of trust to get someone to open up about. These are the stories that are often kept in the vault, that we only hear from a best friend, but once we hear them, we recognize something of ourselves in them. It's a relief to know that whatever crappy thing we've gone through, someone else has experienced it too. And now that that's out there, we can support one another through it. I'm your host and the founder of Not Safe for Mom Group, Alexis Barad Cutler. I'm also a mom of two. And after having kids, I've had to face some of the more complicated parts of my past and present. And whenever I've done so, it's always helped me connect with people, which is why this work is so important to me. So welcome to the show. Welcome to Mom Group. Hey, Mom Group. So just a heads up, today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about something really difficult. Um, well, all our episodes are difficult, but I I just wanted to give you um, a little bit of warning um, that we're going to be dealing with infant loss and stillbirth today. It's something that we don't talk about a lot on our online platform, Not Safe for Mom group, or really in general. It's kind of like it's a bad word. And I know that even when I see stillbirth or angel babies come up on my own Instagram feed, there are days when I personally can't even face it. I'll just scroll past and be like, nope, nope, not, not going there. But why? You know, like it happens and it happens a lot more than people think. It happened to two people I know in just the last two weeks. And yet we still have this idea that like, oh my God, it never happens. But if it's happening, who are those people talking to if we're never talking about it? We have to normalize it. We have to create spaces where it feels safe for those who have gone through it to feel like they have a home and where they can feel embraced and welcomed. And our guest today is someone who is talking about her experience and who's reaching out to others to help them feel embraced too. So thank you for joining us today, Anna Feldberg. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to to be here and share share this story. I'm really glad that you reached out when I posted on the Upper East Side Mom Groups. There are so many submissions that come my way, and uh, yours was one of them that really caught my eye. It's very it's very brave to um, talk about something that's so difficult. Yeah, and like you said, it is definitely taboo. Um, when it happened to me, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into the details, but when it happened to me, I was it took me by complete surprise. I had never really heard about it too much until it happened to me. So happy to share my story. So I want to take um, take us a little bit back in time to your life before, you know, back when you you had no idea of that stillbirth, that infant loss whatever be on your radar, um, to before you became a mom. Um, where were you living? What were you doing? Um, so I'm an attorney and I also married my high school sweetheart. We got married six years ago, almost to the day. 
And um, before we decided to have children, I was in law school, then I became an attorney, um, and I was living in New York City. And, you know, just the, the typical life in New York City. And this is also pre-pandemic, so, you know, a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely a lot more fun than right now. So. Yeah. Yep. So pretty typical, you know, newlywed, uh, newlywed life. And working hard. Working hard and, and going to brunch. Yeah, basically. That's, that just kind of describes what my life was like in my 20s, but with a lot more drinking involved. Right. <laughs> and uh, and then where, like, where were you at when you both decided, like, okay, we're ready to start a family? It's funny. Speaking of drinking, we were actually, it was, um, I don't remember what birthday, 27th maybe? My 27th birthday, we're out drinking. And we both kind of just brought it up for the first time. We had never really spoken about it. Um, and that's when we decided, hey, you know what? This might be a good time. The best laid plans happen over a couple drinks. It was more than a couple, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about the day you were born. Um, so, so then um, what was trying to conceive like? So it was exciting at first, um, but I'm a very anxious person and I have OCD, anxiety, all sorts of things. And I did not like the fact that I had no control um, and that it was totally out of my hands. And so a couple of months passed and I was very frustrated, but you can't really see uh, an endoc a re reproductive endocrinologist until they say, you know, if you're perfectly healthy and, and on the younger side, at least 12 months of trying. But that wasn't really for me, I wanted to kind of jump in a little bit more quickly. So we went around like six or seven months and turns out everything was fine with both of us. Um, no problems that could be seen. So they just kind of said, keep trying. Um, then a year rolled around and we, we went back and um, all the tests remain positive. Um, it, meaning that they, you know, there was nothing conclusive that was wrong with either of us. Um, so we planned to start IVF. Um, and mind you, we had also done four IUIs up until this point. So um, it just seemed to not be in the cards for us naturally um, or through IUI. So um, we were gearing up for IVF. Um, and of course, as the story goes, you, all, you, you stop planning and um, then you get, you know, what you want. So right before we started IVF medication, um, I got pregnant and we were like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it feels like a miracle, like it's meant to be. Yeah, it felt pretty cool. I, I really didn't want to have to go through IVF just because I had heard some stories about it. And um, I just, you know, I was I was nervous, um, but I was going to do it if I had to. And um, and then I got pregnant. So I was very, very super psyched. And how was pregnancy for you? It was, it was great. I mean, you'll hear a lot of women like me who end up having loss say it was a textbook pregnancy. There were no problems. Um, everything was perfect. Um, the nuchal was fine. Every scan was fine. Um, I felt I was nauseous for sure. I definitely had like pretty bad morning sickness, but I mean, other than that, everything seemed to be going very, very well. Perfect growth, perfect everything. Um, until of course, you know, it wasn't perfect anymore. Do you hear that a lot from people who have infant loss that the pregnancy was just fine? Yes. I hear it very, very frequently. Um, 50%, um, I think, is a statistic of stillbirths are the causes unknown. Um, we, I work with an organization, which I'm sure I'll talk about later, and we have some doctors on our, um, on our board and involved that have helped lots of women find what their causes are, um, even if originally their doctors were like, you know, we don't really, we just don't know. Um, so 
I hear it a lot in, in terms of, you know, we just don't know what happened all of a sudden, you know, I didn't feel movement for a few hours and I went to the hospital and they told me there was no heartbeat. Like it's, it's just kind of crazy how that can happen. Wow. Yeah. And it's so difficult for someone, especially who likes to remain in control and who's anxious and maybe has obsessive tendencies. You want to know like, what's the reason? Can I uncover it? Can I get ahead of it? Yeah. for next time and then you're left with like no it was just we don't know yeah I, I a lot of doctors have told their patients including myself that it was just a fluke um, or a lot of people a lot of doctors like to blame it on a cord accident um, an umbilical cord accident meaning it was compressed or there was a knot or it was around the baby's neck um, but in my case that just that just wasn't enough for me so I, I kind of had I contacted other a placental pathologist to try to dive deeper and get a, a better understanding of what might have happened. Was there, um, was it part of it though? Was, was there a, a cord? The, um, no, the cord in my situation was completely fine and oh. there was nothing wrong with it. Wow. Yep. It's so unsatisfying. Extremely unsatisfying. We also did genetic testing, all came back normal. Um, we, we did not do an autopsy, but the doctors say that most of the time an autopsy doesn't reveal much. Um, we did a placental pathology, and it, at first it came back inconclusive. Um, and then we reached out to a more, uh, I guess, well-known placental pathologist. Um, and he was able to, to look at my slides, my placental slides that my hospital sent to him, and let me know that my placenta was extremely small. Um, but he doesn't know why. So I'm still kind of left with, okay, I had a small placenta, like extremely small, but no other doctor thought that that was an issue um, in the delivery room or the first pathologist. And, and the second doctor couldn't tell me what caused the small placenta. So I'm kind of still just like, how can this happen? And there mm -hmm. not be a cause? Like, how, how is that possible? And is like seeing whether you have a small placenta, is that something that they screen for? It's not, it's not. So it's not standard practice um, at all to measure the placenta. They do look at the placenta's location and different types of um, like how the cord is connecting to it. Um, but they don't typically measure the size uh, of the placenta. Some of the doctors that are involved in my organization are trying to get uh, placental volume measurements to be more standard, um, but they're not. Wow. Yeah. You would think that there would be some effort, like if there's some sign, right, or like landmark, like a placental, like placental volume or thickness, that they'd be like, okay, let's include this in the screening from now on. Yeah, yeah, especially because it literally takes 30 seconds to do the measurement. Um, but yeah, it's just not standard. It's just not standard, especially in a first pregnancy that has no issues. Or maybe it may be the worry is, you know, if you look for something, you'll find something and then you'll have all these pregnant women who might go on to have live birth um, worried now for the whole entirety of their pregnancy that they're going to have a stillbirth because of their placental size. Yeah, I think that's, not. yeah, I think that's definitely fair. I think a lot of doctors just don't think it's a major problem because stillbirth is, is rare. Um, you know, it happens not that frequently. Um, but as I've come to learn in my experience, it's also not, um, I'm sorry, I mean, it's not that common. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've also come to learn that it's not that rare. Um, but yeah, I, I think doctors just don't want women worrying during their pregnancies. Um, 
and that's part of the reason that they don't look for these things that are not, you know, they don't go beyond the standard of care for the most part. And then like, what are you supposed to do, right? Like, let's say you knew and you had a crystal ball. Would you, what would you do? So if you could somehow figure out that your placenta is small, your -hmm. doctors would be able to kind of optimize your delivery timing so they could induce Mm -hmm. you early. They could do a C-section. It all kind of depends. And it's just one factor that goes into it. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's something that's, I I mean, in my second pregnancy, uh, it was important for me to have my placenta measured at every single, at every single um, appointment. So you were able to take more safety measures and, and advocate for yourself. Because now you had more information. Yes, definitely. Um, I researched stillbirth and prevention. I've probably read every single page on Google, which is both good and bad. And mm-hmm. in my second pregnancy, I was at the doctor's office or the hospital or my MFM like every week, sometimes twice, sometimes three times a week. <laughs> I wasn't playing yeah. around the second time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you weren't playing around the first time either. Right. But I was definitely less... Uh, I, I didn't advocate as much for myself and I didn't know enough. <laughs> so right. I didn't know what to advocate for, or if I needed to. Well, I think a lot of women are in the same place with their first pregnancies. We put a lot of trust into the process and in our caregivers, um, our medical caregivers. And um, it's not that you can't trust them. It's just that it's not. Uh, it's not a fully foolproof process. Right. And, um, and you do need an advocate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Outside doctors, of yourself. right. And, and doctors are people too. So, I mean, and they have tons of patients, so I, I understand it. Um, and it's the standard of care and they don't want to have to do things that can potentially open them to open themselves or their practices to liability. But yeah, it, I was definitely much more informed second time around. So take us to it's must I mean it's hard for me to even I'm sure you're you're probably better at talking about this than anybody um but I hate asking you um because I'm uncomfortable um take us to that time like when when did this happen along like how many weeks were you so I was 35 weeks pregnant and again it was a perfect pregnancy no causes for alarm everything was fine and um one day after work I just I noticed decreased movement and um, my husband was at a bar. He was at a happy hour again, free pandemic. And like, right before the pandemic, it was November of 2019. And um, I was texting him, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable. There's, I just I haven't felt movement in a while. And I couldn't remember the last time I really felt something significant, which was weird because she, you know, she moved a lot. Um, she kicked a lot. And so when my husband got home from the bar, I, I was still worrying. I called my doctor. She said, you know, I'm sure everything's fine, but if you want, you can go to the hospital just for peace of mind. And I, I remember she said, 99% chance everything is fine. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go. So mm-hmm. we went and we're in the Uber on the way up to Mount Sinai. And um, I'm like, my nails are digging into my husband's hands. I'm just like, I know something is not right. And I was praying in that moment for like a bump in the car to cause her to kick anything, any sign of life. And I just knew something was not right. And so we got there to the hospital and um, the nurse saw me, one of the nurses saw me and she pulled me, you know, ahead of the other people because she saw my stomach and she saw like my face, I guess. And she was like, what's going on? She put us um, 
on a bed, like in the hall, it wasn't even like a real room or anything, but she wanted to be able to just like reassure me and find the heartbeat. And then she kind of, she put the ultrasound machine on. She didn't make any expression. She got, she brought a doctor over. The doctor brought more nurses over. And this whole time, my husband and I are looking at each other like frozen in fear. Um, and so the doctor finally said, look, it's, it's, we're going to get a second opinion, but we can't find the heartbeat. And the scream that came out of me and also my husband, it, it was like a, a primal, I'll never forget it. Um, I remember we were next to one other couple. They were in a bed kind of next to us in the hall. It was like kind of makeshift. And I, I always kind of wonder like, what were they thinking at the time that, that couple? Um, Cause we were, we were inconsolable. And so they took us into a real bedroom and I mean, it was kind of a, a very quick thing. They were like, all right, we got to prep you for, for induction. And I'm like, like I couldn't even, I couldn't even think or comprehend that there was a dead baby in my stomach. Like it was, it sucks to say it, but in the time I was like, Oh my God, like this, this 35 week, my, my daughter is just, and I need to get her out. You know, it's, it's really, really traumatizing. And I couldn't even appreciate it at the time. I was just like, a, I was in complete shock, complete, complete shock, um, clinical. And, um, and I was just like, wow, I, I have to get her out. Like I have to deliver her. And that's like a whole other nightmare. Um, because you don't get that happy ending. You're not waiting for that first cry because you know, there's, there's not going to be, and it's just, oh, it's just horrible. So when did you deliver her? So, um, they induced me and it took, took longer than, um, than everyone would have liked. It was like a 16 hour induction. Um, they thought about doing a C-section, but then finally I, uh, I was able to, to dilate and, and I delivered her on November 8th of 2019. Um, I was scared. I didn't know what she was going to look like. I didn't know, you know, how long she had, how long it was, before, you know, since she had passed, I didn't know what her skin was going to look like. And I was like terrified, um, to see her or hold her. And, you know, they say, do you want to see her or hold her? And my husband at first was like, no, is there any way we could do this without seeing her? And then, he completely regretted his decision. And as soon as I gave birth to her, we both were like, we have to see her. We, you know, she's our daughter, our first child. And, um, so, you know, they clean her off like they do, like they would with any baby. Um, and my doctor was really, really caring the whole time. Like she was very, very good. Coached me through the whole thing. Um, and it was like a surreal experience. Um, and so then they gave me her and we named her Charlotte. And I held her and I just stared at her and she was perfect. Like she, she was just perfect. She was, she obviously had passed only, you know, the day before. Um, mm -hmm. And so a lot of times some of the, you know, the skin has a certain condition, but she was just perfect. And she looked like a regular live baby, except she wasn't. And her eyes were closed and we got to hold her for, I couldn't even tell you how long it was. I think it was probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Um, we didn't know that we could keep her longer than that. And, and, uh, it, yeah, it was, we only have a few pictures of her. Um, I, the hospital takes pictures, um, if you want them to, but they, the pictures they take are like, at least our hospital was not, <laughs> they're like black and white, awkward photos. And, um, I had asked my dad who, who a lot of family was able to come to the hospital again, pre pandemic. And, um, they, I said, dad, can you please just use your cell phone, take a few photos of us holding her? Like I, I, uh, I, 
and I just remember thinking, you know, and he was like, I don't, I don't think we should take pictures or I think he was probably like nervous to do it. Um, but ultimately I'm very glad he did because they're much better than the hospital photos that we, that we got. Yeah. So, so we held her, you know, for 30 minutes and then they took her away and that was it. And, and I mean, I stayed there for another, maybe I think another night. Um, and then I was just discharged into the wild and <laughs> like that was, it was as if, my world and my husband's world and my entire family's world kind of just stopped and the rest of the world kept going. And it was an absolute and utter nightmare. And I felt like the worst part of it, other than obviously our daughter dying, um, was the guilt that I felt. It was like all encompassing. I did this, I'm responsible for this. And then it didn't, you know, it didn't help when, when no doctor could tell us what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just kept blaming myself. It's, I've come to learn it's easy to do that when there's no other reason. And, you know, I, I carried her. So what did I do that was wrong? Did I do yoga and like crush her? Did I, I came up with all these things. And that's another story I hear from a lot of women. You know, they come up with every single, was it, I went to the dentist. Was it the dental work? You know, I lay, I slept on my back the night before. Was it that, um, did I exercise too hard or did I not exercise enough? Like, did I eat something and get listeria? You know, there's all these things that women think of, did I do this? And I was plagued for months and months and months, like to the point where I was, I almost got institutionalized because I was like, it was just the grief and the guilt was not a good combination. And, and then paired with my pre-existing anxiety and OCD, it was a recipe for just absolute horror. So, um, yeah. That was the, the first few months were not good. Were you able to talk to anybody? Yes. So I was connected with a therapist, um, who, a psychologist, she specializes in reproductive um, issues and loss. And I connected with her like two or three months after Charlotte died. And she was, she was great. I got connected with a, um, psychiatrist who specialize in reproductive issues and loss. And, uh, which is, I, you know, it's a niche, but it's also, I guess, not niche enough to have a, you know, they have client bases. Mm-hmm. Um, and she put me on antidepressants and, um, anti-anxiety medication. And, uh, that was integral into my healing. Um, clonopin was a, a lifesaver at that point, um, just to control like immediate anxiety attacks. And, um, and this was again, November 8th. Um, and it was leading into the holidays and, the holidays were supposed to be this like awesome time. You know, it was my parents' first grandchild and it was our first child. And it was supposed to be really just baby's first Thanksgiving and baby's first Christmas and baby's first Hanukkah and baby's first new year. And, and I turned 30 two weeks after I gave birth to her. And it was just like a whirlwind of sadness, disappointment, guilt. And yeah. So. And your body too, I imagine was still. Yeah. Like- pregnant, you know, or postpartum. Yes. It was very much postpartum. The milk comes in and it's very painful to try to, you know, the doctors will tell you, give you tips and tricks to, to get it to go away quickly. And fortunately for me, it did go away within, I'd say like a week. Um, but it's so cruel. It's like you wake up the next day after you give birth and you're just, you're bleeding, you're dripping, you're leaking, you're, and you have no baby to kind of, you know, put all this love and bodily, reaction into. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I heal from the birth. Fortunately, I, I, it was a, an okay birth, um, in terms of recovery, but 
and, and I'm lucky for that, but, uh, and I didn't have to do a C-section that time around. So I didn't have, you know, too much to heal from physically, but the mentally, the mental recovery is, is ongoing. Honestly, it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a death. It's a grief. You're grieving a death and that's not something you get over. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really horrible. And you, there are so many different losses that come with it. It's not only your child, your first child or your second child or whatever it is for you. It's, it's all the hopes and dreams you had for them. It's, it's, all the hopes and dreams your your own parents had for their first grandchild, um, that your brothers and sisters had for their nephew for their niece, um, it's it's so much. And then you know, I'm also at a time in my life where a lot of my friends are pregnant, and my best friend happened to be pregnant at the time, and she gave birth two months after I did, and it was she also was her first child, also a girl, and that was I felt a secondary loss there too, because it was so awkward and stilted between us for so long. I didn't partake in, you know, the beginning of her first child's life at all. We kind of just operated as if she didn't have a child. She was extremely understanding. Um, and I'm involved now. I, I know her child. Um, she's adorable, but at the time I, I couldn't even think about her thinking like, you know, I was so jealous. I was so just, everything was so unfair. Everything felt so unfair. Was unfair. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and how did the world take you in post baby loss? So my family and friends were very supportive. Um, my job, I, I actually quit my job like two seconds after this happened. I was like, hell no, <laughs> am I going back to my job? Um, but my boss was like, you know, take a few weeks, see what happens. He kept my position open and I ended up going back. So they were very oh, understanding. Right. Yeah. And actually one of my coworkers had a, tragic tragic loss herself the year before mine um her husband passed so she was kind of like a beacon of 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 hope and um she was like a a a grief leader i guess (laughs) if you will Mm -hmm. um so they work was very understanding and i had all the the pieces that you might need that you might think you need to heal and recover um but it's it's not that simple i mean i had the therapy i had the meds i had the family friends understanding work but it, in a loss like this and when you're feeling such guilt and responsibility it's it takes very long to be able to breathe again honestly so what were your first steps towards feeling like you could take a breath so other than all of those things one of the most integral things to my quote unquote healing process um was group therapy um or not really therapy but support groups with other parents mm-hmm. Um, who have been through this because no one really understands it unless they've been through it. Um, it's just not something you can explain and, and really, I, I wouldn't have comprehended it. You know, I, I, I suppose you could say that about any loss, um, any type of loss, but um, speaking with other women who had to give birth to a baby who was not alive, um, there's just, you know, an understanding and you don't have to struggle to put it into words. Um, so, so support groups were extremely useful and helpful because at first I was like, wow, I'm the only person in the world this ever happened to. And then, mm-hmm. and then I found out I wasn't, um, but it took a while to find that out. Um, probably because of my, my shock. Um, and I was just, you know, not really ready to, to connect with others. Um, but connecting with others was very, very important. Um, and I realized, you know, this actually happens to, to more people than I, than I thought. And I, you know, it's not that rare. How did you find the support groups? 
So my family was kind of firing at all cylinders. They were looking everywhere they could. Um, my brother found me a really great support group that was meeting in person um, in New Jersey. We went there and it was great. It met weekly. Um, then my aunt found us one at a hospital in, in New Jersey. Um, again, it was in person, but now it's all Zoom and I still attend that one monthly. Um, and there's a couple through through different organizations in New York. Um, and I'm very glad that, that, you know, everyone worked so hard to find these for me because I couldn't do it for myself at that time. And, and I, to this day, I have a, a, a group chat going with other lost moms. Um, and we just talk all the time. And, and fortunately all of us, the four of us in that group have had rainbow babies. And so we also talk about, you know, we were talking about the pregnancy after loss. It was weird. We were all pregnant again at the same time. Um, and all gave birth pretty much within a few months of each other. And, uh, now we talk about parenting after loss. So I have that, you know, that was very, very helpful and is very helpful continually. Yeah. It's so amazing that you built that community. Yeah. And it, it, there really yourself. is a community. It's, it's weird. Actually, one of the girls lives a block away from me and it's, I met her through this and, you know, it's, it's just, you learn that, you know, it happens to people that, you know, or, you know, everyone, or everyone knows someone or knows someone that has had a stillbirth. And it's like, Whoa, I just never really thought mm -hmm. about this before it happened to me. Um, and it's, it's life shattering. So I just, you know, now I can look back and kind of appreciate, wow, you know, there really needs to be more research on this, or why isn't there so much research on this? And why does this happen mm -hmm. to one in 160, one out of every 160 pregnancies? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's lot. a lot and it's not to scare anyone. I mean, it most likely will not happen to you. Like it, the odds are pretty good. Um, but now odds mean nothing to me personally, or, you know, my friends that I met through this. Um, I mean, it is a lot. It's, it's 23, 24,000 babies a year in the United States alone. So it's, it's not a, it's not an insignificant number. Mm -hmm. so. And what about your husband? What was his he process like? He felt, um, he was distraught. Um, and he also benefited from the support groups. Um, he still attends them with me, but at the time, I think in the beginning, he was so sad, but also so worried about me, um, because of how I was not dealing well. Um, very concerned about me, very felt so bad that I had to go through the delivery and, um, he was a tremendous support and, you know, it, it was hard because they say that people grieve in different ways and, you know, within a couple, you can grieve in different ways and it just changes you as people, as a couple, as, as every, your whole life is just different from that moment on. And, um, he was really, really great, really supportive, but you know, he also lost a daughter. He didn't give birth to her, but he also lost her. And he went through the mm -hmm. whole, you know, grieving process. And to this day, you know, he still goes to the groups and everything. So was it hard for him to consider having another child? So one of the other things I hear a lot from women and men um, in our situation is, you know, a lot of people right in the hospital, one of their first questions will be, when can we try again? And it's kind of like a shock response um, because you just lost a kid and, and you're just like, you want some sort of, you want to grasp onto anything you can hold on to. So you want to know when you can try again. And I remember asking that. I remember saying, when can you try again? Wow. And then I wasn't ready to try again. Like the second I left the hospital, I was like, what the fuck happened? Like what, what just happened to my life? Um, and, but ultimately a couple months pass and, um, we wanted to start trying again. You know, your body has to heal. That's number one. Number two, your, your mind has to kind of prepare for another pregnancy after 
such a traumatic loss um, at 35 weeks. It, you know, it's to get to 40 weeks is a really long time when all you're doing is worrying. So um, I ended up getting pregnant again three months later or four months later, actually. And um, I was excited, but very worried. And it ended up being a miscarriage at six weeks. And that was like a dagger. It was like salt to the wound beyond. I was like, if I had gone two steps forward, it took me like 10 steps back. And, um, it was just, it was terrible. Um, and then I, and and again, that was like kind of a miracle because it took me so long to get pregnant the first time. So the second time around, it just kind of happened. Um, but then it was a loss, um, a miscarriage. And then I was like, you know what, fuck this. I'm not waiting any longer. Let's just do IVF. Let's control as much as we can control in terms of, you know, getting PGS testing and, you know, testing the embryos and blah, blah, blah. So we did IVF, um, really not a terrible process, honestly. And, um, and I did it during co I did it in the beginning of the pandemic. I started preparing for it in April and yeah. there were a lot of worries because a lot of people's treatments got canceled um, because of, you know, the whole crazy COVID pandemic was closing everything down left and right, including fertility centers. So we were worried that it was going to get shut down, but long story short, it didn't. And it worked out and I got pregnant in June, July. Um, and I gave birth to my rainbow baby in March of, um, 2021. What was that birth like? Well, um, I chose to have an elective C-section because I was not risking any sort of complications. I wanted them to just, just get her out as soon as quickly as possible. Um, so I did that and it was hearing that first cry was like, I, I was hysterical on the, the table. I was just like, I can't believe like I have a live baby that just cried. Um, so it was very overwhelming um, and, and just beautiful and, and just, you know, but also really sad because it, I didn't get that with my firstborn. And I, you know, it's just, even to this day, you know, I look at my second daughter and I'm like, you should have an older sister and I should, everything I'm doing with you, I should be, should have done with my first child. And so it'll sting me in ways today that are expected and unexpected. And did, do you think that that loss has affected like your parenting? Yes. Um, definitely. I, as I said, I'm a, a pretty anxious person to begin with and I think I'm a little bit more comfortable now. She's almost 11 months, but those first few days, few months, you know, I, I would worry so much about her. Like, is this one going to die too? Is this, you know, I, so many different things that are really hard to say out loud because a, my OCD brain is like, if I say them, they might happen. And B I'm like, well, odds mean nothing. So even though there's, you know, 2000 babies die of SIDS every year in America, like that's going to be my baby because why not, you know, my other one died. So hmm. So it's impacted me in anxiety ways. Um, I think it's definitely heightened my anxiety. Um, but I'm also very appreciative of this beautiful child that I have living. She's she's just incredible. And, and she makes me happy. And she's brought back some spark to my life um, that my husband and I were both, you know, struggling to get back. How How is your relationship with your husband? It's... it's- during the grieving process and during the grieving now. process, we were each other's rocks, especially because we were grieving during the pandemic. We were like pretty much, you know, the first few months I was very mm-hmm. glad to have family and friends around. And then 
And then COVID happened and it was pretty much just me and my husband and our dog in New York City and we barely left. Um, and it was actually kind of nice. Um, we didn't have to see anyone, speak to anyone. I didn't have to tell any of my clients what happened. I didn't have to, you know, really, I didn't have to meet my friend's new baby or my nephew who was born two weeks after Charlotte died. So there was a lot of built-in excuses that, you know, we didn't need to see people. So he and I really, you know, we were each other's rocks throughout that first, you know, year of quarantine or half a year of quarantine. Um, and he was very supportive throughout the second or my second pregnancy, um, with my, my, uh, living child, Winnie, he would reassure me and he would, you know, if I thought I didn't feel movement or less movement, he would put his hand on my belly and he really coached me through all of that came to as many appointments as they would let him. Um, and now we're, you know, we're very, when you and your husband have something that, you know, not many other people understand, um, and it sucks to say it, but a dead child, there's, you know, it either brings you closer or it drives you apart. And for us, fortunately, you know, we Mm -hmm. stayed by each other's sides and here we are parenting after loss. And, uh, we keep our first daughter very much, uh, in our lives. That's so wonderful. I don't hear that story. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of couples separate after a loss like this. That's at least what the statistics say. Um, and it's, I can understand why, because you grieve in different ways. You, you know, one person grieves a lot. One person does it. One person wants to talk about it. One, the other person doesn't. And, you know, it can mm-hmm. really fuck up a relationship. Um, but we, we managed to stick it through and it's, yeah, we're, I think we're much closer for it. Yeah. It sounds like you were very aligned to begin with. Aligned. um, And, you know, he, he picked me up when I needed to be picked up and I would pick him up when he needed to be picked up. And, you know, sometimes we both Mm -hmm. needed it and we didn't have it. It's not like it was a a perfect scenario, but um, we helped each other. Yeah. It worked. Yeah, it worked. The question that I get a lot from people who read into Not Safe for Mom group is, you know, if you have a friend who's just suffered a loss and especially a, a still a stillbirth what do you do for them what can you say what can you so offer? it's really hard um and in the beginning I was kind of you know whatever anyone would do I was like fuck you like you have a perfect life go away you know my best friend who was pregnant and then gave birth like she was so understanding and so sensitive but at the same time I was like I hate you you have a perfect pregnancy, not like, you, you know, I had all these crazy thoughts, um, that aren't really crazy. They're just, you know, I'm human. Um, so whatever people do, it, you're not going to be happy. Um, and people will say really dumb things. They'll show you pictures of babies and you're like, really, why, why would you be doing that? Um, why would people I, I do that? Um, you'd, you'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> but you know, other people will say, don't worry, you'll have more babies. You're young. And it's like, yeah, okay. First of all, you don't know about my 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 fertility struggle. Second of all, like second baby is not going to replace my first dead baby. Like it's not it's not how it works. Um, and like, <laughs> so people say crazy things. Um, so I could give you a whole list of what not to say, but <laughs> what to yeah. do and what to say is really just like, there's no making it better. And a lot of people will try to make it better, but you can't bring back, you know, you can't bring back somebody who died. So um, it's it's a tough it's a tough um, line, but you just have to be there and be able to listen without kind of offering 
advice um, because you don't, ha nobody can have advice for you unless they've been through it themselves and can really sympathize with you. Um, and yeah, it, it's just be there and listen and, and comfort, but don't try to fix anything. Right. I think that's the impulse. Like you want to make it better, but there's nothing you can do. To yeah. Make it and better. another thing I learned is that, you know, you can talk, you can bring it up. You can, when people bring up Charlotte, I, you know, it, it hurts, but it's also great to hear her name because how, you know, she's not running around playing soccer. She's not, she's not going to be talked about in other respects, like other living children. Um, I only have like 10 pictures of her total. Um, so when I hear her name, it's great. And I learned that because like I said, my coworker who lost her husband, at first, I didn't want to bring his name up at all to her. I didn't want to make her sad. I didn't want to like have her crying. I, I just wanted to be as sensitive as possible. But what I've come to learn, it could be different for other people. But for me, if you avoid it, I think it's worse. And and you know, I'm always thinking about her. She's always, my coworker's always thinking about her her late husband. So it's not like you're going to make us sad by bringing them up. If anything, you might just you know, it, it will be nice to hear their names. Must feel like feeling yes. seen. Yes, absolutely. Um, definitely. Hearing their names and, and our, you know, experiences being validated and acknowledged for what they really are. Um, horrible, traumatic, terrible, life shattering, devastating losses. That's, you know, it's, it's helpful to be seen. So tell us a little bit more about PUSH. So PUSH for Empowered Pregnancy is a nonprofit. It's fully volunteer-based. Um, it's run by women, mostly women, but also fathers who have suffered stillbirths. Um, some grandparents are involved as well. And um, what we do is we we started last year. We're a 501c3, and we, are, we want to do research. We want to fund research. We want to speak with all the, the relevant doctors and pathologists, um, SMFMs and OBGYNs uh, to kind of find ways um, to prevent stillbirth. A lot of stillbirth is preventable. Um, there, there's an estimation that 25 to 30% of stillbirth is preventable. Um, some are not. Some, you know, are going to happen no matter what, um, no matter what measures are taken or how much monitoring happens. But some, and I, I truly believe mine could have been prevented if the placenta had been measured and, you know, if there was a little bit more, a higher standard of care um, for OB. For, for pregnancies in this country. Um, so anyways, we, we talk to doctors, we do research, we hold symposiums to get all the, the relevant smart people, you know, together to try to uh, reduce the rate of stillbirth in the country. And what kind of resources do you offer for parents? Yeah, so we have a, a, a great website that has all a million different research, uh, resources for parents who are going through this, um, different names of different support groups, um, and, you know, opportunities to get involved with push. You know, we, we get contacted by women every single day, um, around the country and they just mm -hmm. want to do something to honor their babies. Um, they want to get involved with legislation or they want to get involved with research or they want to do social media awareness campaigns. And, and, um, so, you know, it's, it's an outlet for a lot of women, but at the same time, it's a really, I think we're, I think push is doing incredible things. Um, the doctors that are involved, they're just amazing. Um, they're just, they're just so knowledgeable and so compassionate, um, in ways that many doctors aren't. Um, so it's, it's a really, really great outlet for me personally. Um, and I feel like I'm honoring my daughter, uh, as I, as I do all of these things with push. It's so wonderful that you created this. 
and that this exists yeah, now. Yeah, it's, it's, you didn't yeah, have it. Um, the women that are involved and the men, um, they're just incredible people. I mean, there's nothing like when you get an angry group of moms um, together and angry group of parents, I should say, like that's when things get done, I think. Or, so <laughs> all these women, all these people could oh, not yeah. possibly be angry at the world, <laughs> but um, in a good way, you know, in a, in a very productive way. Yeah. Yeah, productive oh, yeah. anger definitely. is a good anger. I'll definitely include uh, links to push for pregnancy. Push for empowered pregnancy. Push for empowered pregnancy um, in our show notes. And um, I want to end with a question for you. Um, what would you have, if you could go back in time and say to yourself, when you were going through the worst part of the hardest time of your life, I guess the early part of this grief, if you could tell yourself something, what would it be? It would be what I tell other women now who I'm connected with, who have suffered stillbirths. It's that it will change and it will, your grief will not be all encompassing for the rest of your life. Um, you will be able to smile again and you will be able to, to be happy again. Uh, your life has changed forever, no doubt, but don't, don't think it's going to stay that way forever because though it's not linear, grief will, it evolves. Um, and that's what my coworker has said to me. It changes, it evolves. It's, you just kind of learn how to carry it. Um, and I think about Charlotte every day, every single day. I, if I hear a sad song, I'm immediately in tears, but I'm no longer crying every day. Um, I, I, you know, I'm able to smile and laugh and you will still be able to have a good, productive, meaningful, happy life, um, despite your loss. Um, and you'll, you can carry your, your, your baby with you forever in different ways. That's so beautiful. What is Charlotte's Winnie. sister's name? <laughs> oh, those are such great names. You know, Winnie, they go Winnie so Shea, well and Shea is after Charlotte and people are like, what? But you know, Shay and Charlotte kind of sound the same. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing your, doing the work that you do, creating the things that you've created and being so strong and such a strong voice and advocate for women who've suffered loss. I really appreciate you and having me on your show. I think, um, I think it's just, first of all, congratulations. I think it's going in a very awesome direction. And, uh, and I really appreciate Thanks. you shedding light on, on these types of things because, you know, people don't really talk about it and yet, you know, it happens to a bunch of us. So thank you. I appreciate it. We have to, we gotta also to, um, our listeners, I apologize for all the sniffling <laughs> that you heard, um, on the uh, show, but, um, yeah, this is, this is a tough one. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks Thank for being you. on here. Everybody, if you like what you're listening to, please follow, like, subscribe, um, leave a review. It all helps. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>